Morning. All right. Uh, it's just great to be here. It's great to hang out with a friend and his family. And uh, it's uh, thank you for the invite. And uh, trust uh, that in that beautiful sense of the presence of Jesus, uh, that his word will come to us. And uh, we, uh, uh, we uh, love the scriptures. And the reason why we love them is because the Holy Spirit inspired them thousands of years ago, but is continuing to inspire them. <laughs> And breathe life into them. So I pray that the breath of life will enter into you uh, today. The title this morning is Hungry. And uh, I want to read some words from Habakkuk at uh, Habakkuk chapter 1. Uh, you can find it if you want to, but by the time you found it, probably I finished the sermon. Um, so Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you don't listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Wow. Habakkuk's hungry. Habakkuk's longing for something. Habakkuk's in a place where, I don't know, have you had a Habakkuk day? Have you had a Habakkuk kind of week? Uh, have you had a Habakkuk month or a, a Habakkuk season? Anybody out there that can, can identify with that kind of questioning? Just one? Just, oh, there's more than one. There's more than one. Yes. You're swamped by a situation. You're sunk by sometimes life's kind of injustice. And Habakkuk is so honest with God. In fact, he looks at the world and he finds injustice and he cries out and he wonders whether God actually has the power to change it. He even says, your law is paralyzed. Uh, I remember just a few months ago, about 18 months ago, and similar kind of Habakkuk kind of questions are rattling through my mind. Does the gospel work? Does the gospel work? Is it really Good news? Is it the power of God? Can it really transform lives? Because I've been following Jesus for 25 years and I've been serving Jesus for 23 of those 25 years. And after a little bit of a while, you get a bit cynical, you get a bit jaundiced, you kind of begin to look at situations, you become a little bit scarred and weary, you become a bit cynical. And those questions are rattling through my mind about 18 months ago, 12 months ago, even just about six months ago, those kind of questions. Because the last 18 months for me, as you remember, the queen has had her Annas Horribilis. Do, 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 do you remember that? She, she, had, she had her tough year, her bad year. Well, the last kind of 18 months, two years, uh, have been kind of an Annas Horribilis. I wouldn't want to live through that. I, about 18 months ago, I was diagnosed with uh, mild depression and anxiety. And uh, dealing with mild depression and anxiety is, is, is something of a battle in itself. But then to have mild depression and anxiety and, and be a leader and to hear some of those voices, not necessarily from the congregation, but those voices in your head say, how can you say the joy of the Lord is your strength and yet you're struggling with depression and you're struggling with anxiety and all those types of stuff. And so I was battling away with those types of things. I, my wife was battling with a long-term illness 19 years now and, and a slow erosion of a quality of life taking place within her finally kind of caught up with not just her but with us as a family and that all kind of piles in there with it taking a church through transition 
where an established leader had it for 30 years and, and hands over to me and the transition and the difficulty and the challenges. Uh, there's that word transition again on there. But you're aware of the pain sometimes that transition and change bring because change means death of something. That's what, it, that's what change does. It's the death of something but the birth of something else. And while there's the death of something, there's lament. Yes? Uh, because when something dies, there's lament, and so lament takes place, and I'm, I receive quite a bit of the lamenting uh, from people. And so it's, it's kind of, uh, oh, you got that one. Um, it left me wondering what life as a follower of Jesus is all about, whether the gospel that I believed in works, not only in my life, but in the life of other people. That was until I went to India, went to India in October last year. And uh, a reawakening began to take place within my soul, in my spirit. I saw the gospel save lives. Not just, not just spiritually, people coming to know Jesus, but I saw the gospel save lives, put food into the mouths of hungry people, take people off the streets and give them shelter and a home and a future. I saw the gospel save lives and transform not just individuals, but the whole community. Loved it. I had the privilege of being the first person to share the gospel in this tribal fishing village. In the middle of the night, just about, to the headlights of a jeep. I loved it. I loved it. Preaching the gospel to a, a group of tribal fishermen that had never seen a white person. They'd never heard the gospel before. It was an awesome privilege. And I came home. And I sensed the Lord say to me, this year, Jonathan, I want you to sit at my feet and don't move until you understand and know what the good news is. Don't move away from, without you knowing what it means to follow me. And so for the whole year, this, this 12 months from January for the whole year, as a church we have camped around this whole theme of follow me. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? What did Jesus have in mind when he said, follow me? What did he have in mind when he said, you're my disciple? What did he have in mind when he said, this is the gospel, and I want you to go and proclaim it and to live it? What did he have in mind? And so we've, we've tried to peel back the layers. We've pitched our tent down there, and we've tried to peel back the layers of tradition and culture that's hidden Jesus and his gospel from the church. And this morning, all I can do is to share one, one discovery in that last six months. Is that okay? And so I just want to share one discovery with you. And, uh, you know, this is what we're going to look at today. And it's based around this theme, Hungry. Having just gone through the election, all right, we've, uh, we've heard the word manifesto, haven't we? And uh, we kind of got sick of the elections, didn't we? And we, we don't want another election, do we, in another 18 months' time. So we're praying for this coalition to be strong and, and to carry on with it. All right? Even if that's not a good reason to pray for the coalition to stay strong. <laughs> on there and good government. But uh, we have been praying for that. And the word manifesto was produced and paraded, quoted, misquoted from people and politicians at one another. And we begin our journey at the start of Jesus' journey. And Jesus stands on the mountaintop at the beginning of his mission and he announces his manifesto to his followers. The Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is his manifesto. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' public launch of the kingdom manifesto. It was his moment to announce that a revolution had begun. That's what he's announcing. And you and I know that the opening words of any statement, the opening words of any manifesto are probably one of the most vital expressions and words that you have to choose very, very carefully. And so when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, the opening words 
of his manifesto are called the Beatitudes. You've, you've heard of the Beatitudes? Yeah, you've come across, you've come across those. Before we just get, read some of the Beatitudes, let me just give you a, a kind of clarification on them. Because many of us approach the Beatitudes from the wrong starting point. We kind of fall into the trap of seeing the blessed sayings as a kind of a nine-step series to achieve the blessed life. This is how you achieve the blessed life. This is how you achieve blessing. This is how you achieve an anointed life in Christ. As though they are nine steps for you and I as followers of Jesus to follow. As though they're a pathway to perfection. But the Beatitudes are not a pathway to perfection. If this is the case, all Jesus is doing is replacing the 606 laws and sub-laws and sub-clauses that the Pharisees had with his own. The Pharisees had 600 odd laws on how you can please God. And if, if, if the Beatitudes are just another set of laws, an alternative set of laws, then what we have actually is just another pathway to try and work our way to perfection. But he's not doing that. The Beatitudes are the opening words of an announcement of a manifesto about a spiritual revolution that took place the moment Jesus was born. The moment Jesus started his ministry, the moment Jesus came on this planet, everything changed. Everything. And here's Jesus announcing that a kingdom invasion has already begun, that a spiritual revolution has started. And his opening words are these, Matthew chapter 5. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. It goes on. And this morning what I want to do is I want to take verse 6. And verse 6 only, and I want to drill down uh, to kind of unpack the layers and go phrase by phrase through this one verse. Is that okay? Just for the next few minutes together, this one verse. Just to deal with a couple of words and some of the theological baggage. So you can put the next slide up for me. Let's, let's take it word by word. Let's take the word blessed. Take the word blessed. How many in your Bibles has it got the word happy? Happy. How many of you has it got to be envied? Uh, how many of you in your Bibles has it got the word lucky? There are some translations, believe me, I've, I've checked. There are some translations out there that use the word lucky. Blessed, happy, to be envied in there. And it carries with it this idea of happiness or fortune. And, and, and we could leave it there if you wanted to, but there is, there is something missing if we just leave it at that point. There is a divine ingredient into this word blessed that forms this idea that God's favor is on you. God's favor is on you. Another way of describing the word makarios, which is the, the word there in the, in the kind of the Greek, the blessed, is God is with you. God is with you. God is with you. God is with those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they should be filled. So we got that. Yeah? Not just happy, lucky, or whatever it is on there. It is God is with you. God is with you. Blessed. There's another very theological word in there, and the word is righteousness. Okay? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
Uh, what does the word righteousness mean? What, well, let's unpack it. Can you put, put the next one for me? Thank you. If you're like me, you've kind of hung around church circles for a while. I've, I've been in it kind of from when I was a kid, and I've, I've heard this word righteous quite a few times uh, out there. And you'll have, you'll have picked up the phrase, that righteous means right standing with God. How many would have been that in your top ten answer uh, for that? Right standing with God, which is true. But, it, but again, it carries with it a much broader kind of spectrum. Jesus follows in the footsteps of the prophets who reveal that God's number one desire is that all creation and everything in it is in its right place. All of creation and everything in it is in, it, is in its right place. That's what, that's what righteousness means. Everything in its right place. Uh, relationships in their right place. The world in its right place. Our relationship with God in its right place. A sense of, you know when you feel and you're in the right place in your own heart, and your own spirit. Everything in its right place, in right relationship with, with one another. That's God's righteousness. One rabbi put it like this. He said, when God was looking for a container to capture all the blessings and all the purposes of God, he couldn't find one. And so he created the word shalom. Created the word shalom. I, I love films. I love cinema. I love going to, you know, and, and, and Leon's like that. In fact, we probably preach more from the, from the movies than we do from the scriptures, don't we, Leon, uh, when it comes to that. But I remember when I was reading this that, that God had, I couldn't find a container to, to put all of his blessings and all of his purposes in. And so he created the word shalom to do it. I remember watching Aladdin. We watched Aladdin. Aladdin's great. And, and at the end, it got all the power of the universe. Itty bitty living space. <laughs> and this is what it here. We have all of God's purposes, all of God's plans for life on this earth, and he shoves it into this container called Shalom. It's a long tradition that Shalom actually contains the purposes of God for the planet. Now, many of us translate the word shalom, peace, as though, you know, a kind of an absence of war or an absence of fear or an absence of kind of anxiety or a tranquil place or a tranquil state of mind. But shalom is life as God intended it. It's life ordered by God. It's everything in its right place. It's like a rope. You know, a rope's made up of many different strands. And so shalom has this as one of the strands is this, a proper relationship between me and God, heart-to-heart connectivity, a relationship where spirit and intimacy comes with our walk with him. It has what's one of the strands of shalom. It's dealing with our relationship with him. Another strand of shalom is a proper relationship between people and people, whether it's, whether it's you and me as friends or whether it's nation against nation. We've, we've heard about it already. That's the spectrum that shalom goes to. It deals with the individual, but shalom is a global perspective of God's purposes and plans. Another strand is proper relationships between people and the earth, food, water, clothing, safety, home, environment. You see, God's purposes and plans deal with all of that. Another strand is a proper relation within ourselves, at one in our hearts, at one in our mind, at one in our bodies. So shalom is God's plan for the world. That's why the gospel calls it the gospel of shalom, the gospel of peace. See, the gospel isn't designed just to save our soul. The gospel of shalom is designed to transform our world, and that's why Paul describes it as the power of God. 
It's the power of God. The gospel begins, and it begins with a transformation of an individual's heart. As they turn to Jesus, as they turn to the Lord, and something happens. And you and I know, if I was to go around here with a microphone and, and get your testimonies, you begin to see that not only do you become a follower of Jesus, but your life begins to change. Your heart begins to change. Your attitude, your character begins to get shaped. And, and, and sociologists tell us what happens then is that takes place. A redemption lift takes place. Ever heard the expression redemption lift? Where you become a follower of Jesus, and because you begin to live a life of integrity and honesty, and there's some character change that take place, you actually become more of a better person and as a better person you become more employable or more workable or you become more reliable in the types of things that you do and suddenly what takes place is the gospel not only begins to change the heart it begins to change the lives and the fortunes of individual and enough people become followers of Jesus and have their hearts and lives changed not only do you begin to get families and then tribes and clans but whole communities begin to get changed see that's the gospel see it doesn't just stop with us start and stop with our souls it begins with the whole planet We've seen the transformation videos. We've seen big carrots, haven't we, on the transformation videos. We've seen how communities have been transformed and changed by it. If enough people experience changes like that, communities change. Wow, it's warm in here, mate. So, blessed. God is with you. If you are hungering for everything in the world to be in its right place, Jesus says. God is with you if you're hungering for that kind of shalom or one strand of it in your world. Thank you. Next slide. Is that okay? Are you with me? Are you tracking me so far? We're building, building up to something. So God is with you who hunger for that. But what does it mean to hunger and to thirst for a world? What, is, what does he mean by that? It means kind of a longing. The longing for righteousness. The longing for shalom. But the longing for shalom can look very different then, can't it? Some of the longings are global. I know, probably if again, if I went around here, some of the longings in your heart are for global issues. Or a sense of injustice, or a sense of unfairness, or a sense of, of global poverty, or, or some issue that you're touched into. And there is an ache, and there is a longing in your heart. And so, hungering and thirsting for something like that. That's what it can look like for you this morning. On the other hand, the longing for righteousness could be more of a personal battle. A longing to break free from an addiction. A longing to break free from bitterness. A longing to break free from, from fear or anxiety that's constantly dogged you all of your life. That's what hungering and thirsting for righteousness could look like. Sometimes the hunger is a desire to see HIV AIDS infection rates drop in Uganda. Sometimes the hunger and thirst for righteousness is about a system that keeps on failing, a system that keeps producing injustice. You know, some of us have been aching about the banking situation. Partly because it's your mortgage that's, that's being affected or something like that. But there is an ache about an injustice somewhere online. And we express that longing. We express that desire. We express that hunger with that sense of, oh, God. How many of you have done that? That kind of, ah, this isn't right. The ache. Sometimes the hunger and thirst for righteousness is bad a relationship. 
Maybe you've witnessed the unraveling of a marriage right in front of your eyes and you've seen how messy it's gotten, especially with kids being involved. And you've just ached inside and you've gone, oh, this just, it's just not fair. Just not right. And that's that hunger for shalom. That's that hunger for righteousness. That's that hunger for everything to be in its right place that's not. Sometimes the longing is all that flowing from the issues within. It's about those temptations, those, those habits, those sins, those addictions that keep you coming back and you end up in frustration and despair about yourself. And you keep thinking, am I always going to struggle with this same issue? <coughs> Done it again. Idiot. Is it just me that has that kind of moment? <laughs> Done it again. Will I ever learn? It's the ah. Hunger and thirst. Just kind of sum up that ah. See, in Jesus' day, among his audience, to be hungry and to be thirsty, everybody knew what that meant. 90% of the good soil was taken over and occupied by the Roman forces and those in collusion with them. I mean, 90-odd percent of the population were left with the hard places, the scraps. This ain't just a parable. That was reality. They were left to sow where the weeds were. They were left to sow in the hard places. They could identify with the words of Jesus. God is with you, hunger and thirst. Are you putting it all together? Because what an announcement this is by Jesus. This is so different to what I understood as a teenager about the way Jesus would. See, I thought Jesus was telling me that if I wanted to be his follower and live a blessed life and earn his approval, then I had to intentionally devote every microsecond of my life to the pursuit of becoming a morally more upright person day in, day in, week out, week out. And if that's true, and the gospel is no longer the gospel. Because what Jesus has given us here is a new law then. And we have to fulfill that law before we live a blessed life. But it's not. This is an announcement of what Jesus has done. It's an announcement of what a revolution has begun. This is a new day. This is a new season, he's saying. I thought the Beatitudes were a checklist of nine things he looks for in a radical disciple and somehow by hook or by crook I have to try and achieve them. And I read in preparation for this lots of commentators, great commentators, who were looking at it from the wrong end. Forgetting this is an announcement of what the good news is all about. God is with you who are poor in spirit, Jesus says. Poor in spirit was a derogatory term. God is with you who are the losers. The no-hopers. He's with you. It goes on, the announcement. I had no idea that actually Jesus was blessing the ache that comes from the absence of God's shalom in our lives and our world. 
So to those of you this morning who hunger for life to be different, who long for your world to be different, the good news is God is with you. That's the good news. Thank you. Last slide. God is with you who hunger and thirst for that shalom, for everything to be in its right place, for they shall be filled. What does it mean? What does it mean for, to be filled? See, when you hunger and thirst for something, you're in fact aching and longing for something that's missing. That's what hunger is, isn't it? You are aching and you are longing for something that's not there. Something you lack, an absence of something. What we may have missed over the decades is that Jesus actually blesses the absence, the ache, the longing for shalom in our lives, in our communities, in our world. What we may have missed is that in the middle of this complex world, finding our way through it is difficult. And we can be torn and twisted into all sorts of ways. But Jesus says for those who are feeling the tension of being a citizen of heaven, yet an inhabitant of earth, I'm with you. And there are tensions, aren't there? We have a different value set. We have a different way of living. We have a different way of walking on this planet. We are citizens of heaven, but we are here on this planet. For so long, the gospel we've heard has told us that the blessed life only comes when we make the right decisions. But Jesus actually announces that life can be a little bit more complicated than that. And he's with us in the middle of the tension of trying to find our way forward as a citizen of heaven in a world that's stuffed. It's a Greek word. From the word stuffos, stuffon, stuffu, stuffal. I can do the declensions if you like. It's a Warsaw saying. Sorry about that if that doesn't kind of translate. He's in the middle of the tension. God doesn't wait until we've got all our lives together before he blesses us. We preach that every Sunday. He doesn't wait for us to get all our lives together. He he blesses us. He locates himself in the middle of our hunger and our longings and our aches and our absence and our lack and says, I am with you. Jesus announces to a fragile group of believers who had constantly been reminded by religion that they've missed the mark, that they're not good enough, that God is with you when you don't have it all together. Jesus announcing God is not an examiner you only see and hear from when you failed or passed the test. He is a fellow traveler and he is with you all the way in the middle of the tension and in the midst of your lack. Do you sense that? Do you know that? Religion says, blessed are those who always figure out the right thing to do at the right time. Jesus said, I'm with those who struggle to figure out life, who struggle to know which is best, who lack the answers, who have this ache about the lack of shalom in their heart, their marriage, their home, their workplace, their community, or their world. I'm with you. Jesus says, I'm with you who get so frustrated with yourself because you woke up and realized once again you've been an idiot. the gospel the gospel is glorious glorious amazing grace how sweet 
the sound that saved a wretch like me. Glorious this gospel is. Sounded like Yoda then, sorry. <laughs> Glorious this gospel is. It's really good news. Really good news. It has the power to change this world. And Jesus does it with such ferocious love and relentless tenderness. If you've read the books by Brennan Manning, those are two expressions he uses. Ferocious love, relentless tenderness. In those moments of doubt and temptation and fear in the season of hungering for what isn't there, Jesus stands not at a distance but with us, speaking not words of condemnation or shame, but blessing and love and acceptance. See, I'm part of a generation that is sick and tired of lists of things we should do or shouldn't do in order to achieve God's approval or blessing. I am sick and tired of them. I've had enough of that. But the announcement of Jesus is you don't have to have it all together in order to be blessed. Because in the middle of your... I don't know what to do. In the middle of you, don't know what the next step is. In the middle of, feel so helpless in this situation. Jesus says, don't worry. I am with you. I've come across some Christian teachings that have real difficulty in handling days and emotions like Habakkuk has And they have real problems with me who struggle with and have struggled with depression and anxiety. Real problems. Some people think we ought to live on the resurrection side of life always. And they forget that Jesus wanted his followers, warned his followers, that trouble, temptations, that's why he stuck it in the Lord's Prayer. Because temptations would come, persecution. They forget that through the, the kingdom has come and yet it's not fully come. <coughs> that we are citizens of heaven and yet we live in a world that's broken, that's, that's fallen, that's ruined, that's in decay. And we, it's okay to have those Habakkuk kind of days. It's weeks, seasons, where we ache at our circumstances, where we ache at our world, where we feel a sense of, being overwhelmed by a situation. God is on the side of you who ache. He's on the side of you who hunger and thirst, who lack, who crave for shalom, who crave for everything to be in its right place, for righteousness. Jesus blesses the absence, not just the achievement, he blesses the longing, not just the action. He blesses the desire, not just the doing. He speaks to the despair, to the longing, to the ache, and says, I'm with you even in the middle of that. That is the good news. If you're frustrated with yourself, if you can't believe you've done it again, you need to know God is with you. He says, blessed are you when you ache. Because the world isn't what it should be. 
How many of you this morning, there is a longing in your heart, there is an ache in your heart about a particular world situation? He goes on to say, blessed are you when you get so frustrated you cry out, God, I can't do this anymore. He says, blessed are you when you run out of energy and willpower, when you succumb to temptation. Because in that ache and longing, God is with you. And in all of those things we've listed, his presence satisfies us. Just hand it over the ache, the longing, invite him in to stand with you, to be with you, to bless you. He never forsakes, abandons, walks away, gives up. For those of you who have been shipwrecked like Paul in the middle of doing God's will, this is for you. doing the will of God and you've been shipwrecked you need to know that at the moment of shipwreck God rolls up his sleeves and works redemption and turns those shipwrecks into days of salvation and he'll do it for you let's worship